Let me really quickly, before I forget, this is Wood in Your Ear. You're sitting with Gordy. We actually have... So how do I even properly introduce this guy? His name is Michael Brook. And I know if you guys are anything like me, you might not recognize that name off the top of your head or anything. But long story short, this is the guy who put together the Concrete Wave magazine from... When did when did you start? Like 10? Or at least that's when I first remember seeing it. Like 2010? 2000 and, 2002. Oh, so way longer than I even thought. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then I had a magazine called International Longboarder in 1999. I mean, I'm literally... 20 plus 20 and I had a skate geezer homepage. I'm 25, 27 years deep in this. So how did you even get started in it then? It's a crazy story. It's really a, a wild story and I'd like to tell it to you. So I've been skateboarding since 1975. I was 11 years old. And uh, my first recollection was actually trying a skateboard that had clay wheels and thinking, wow, I didn't kill myself. This is really fun. And that was 1975, and I fell in love with skateboarding, and it was something I just kept up with. In 1994, I went back to see my parents in a little town called London, Ontario, and my father worked at the university, Western Ontario, and he had this thing in his, on his computer. He goes, Michael, you got to see this. This is something called the internet. And I went, how did you get this? He goes, well, it's all, it's all happening here at Western, and here's a book, because uh, there's no, you know google it was just a book that he had gotten uh, that listed websites and one of the websites it listed this is 1994 it said dan's world and dan's world website is still there this guy was on the first if not the first skateboarding website and he strung together all kinds of articles about skateboarding just a really cool guy and i wrote to him and i said hey i'd like to contribute to your site uh, about my 20 years of, of skateboarding so if you go to that website, dansworld.com, you will find my little essay. And my essay talked about what it was like to grow up in the 1970s skateboarding. And what happened after this was quite extraordinary. Back in 1995, if you had an email address, it was a big deal. And uh, people were emailing me from all over the world saying, hey, I really dig this whole thing about skateboarding in the 1970s. I was there too. So my brother, who had really a, a good technical mind, in, in late 95, uh, put together the Skate Geezer homepage. And this thing costs five bucks a month. And I remember like just filling it with people's, there was a little forum, you could leave uh, you know, comments. And I remember some pros got in touch with me, Tony Alva, you know, wrote, wrote something. And it's still there. If you Google Skate Geezer homepage, there's a, it has, it's a personal homepage. But that's kind of what started this whole thing, is this one little foray in 94 over to Dan's world. The next thing that happened, just to make this really quick, is I was working at Xerox and I was trying to sell these massive photocopiers to book publishers. And I was, I was terrible at it. I was just the worst salesman in the world. But I can sell ideas. So I'm sitting trying to figure out how I'm going to sell these massive $200,000, $300,000 machines. And I'm way out of my element. And I contacted a guy called Nick Pitt over at a place called Warwick Publishing. And I said, Nick, Xerox technology needs to be part of your life, you know, one of these pitches. And he like, give me a freaking break. And he said, look, I'll meet with you, um, but I'm not interested. So I said, great. Just even getting an appointment was sort of like, you know, godsend. So I met with him and I said, listen, we have machines that connect to the internet. And you can fax and scan and print. I could just see his face glazing over. But he said, internet. You know, I said, yeah, I, I have a website, you know. Now, I have to understand, 
back in 1996, if you said you had a website, that's kind of like, that was weird. That was odd. It was unusual. And you have to understand in front of me were like piles and piles of manuscripts and people who wanted to get their works published. I mean, this is the 1990s books still mattered. They still do. But back then it was crazy. I mean, yeah, to be published there was hun- a different thing. Right. There were hundreds of people ahead of me on this curve, right? In terms of this line to get in to be published. So he said to me, what's your website on? And I said, it's on skateboarding. He goes, that's really interesting. You know, this extreme games thing is pretty hot. We're thinking about doing a book on skateboarding. Why don't you put together a proposal? So I went home. I went home to London, actually. My dad said, I got to write this proposal for this guy. So he wrote it. Um, he helped me put it together. And I submitted it. And they said, great, we're going to do a book. It's called Your Book. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I started going through any search engine I could find to get in touch with people. I found Larry Stevenson. I found uh, Wes Humpson. I found all kinds of people to do the research on this book. And I, I, I did the book and I got paid for the book and the book sold and then it kept selling. And eventually, I mean, it came out in March of 1999. We're, we're talking about 23 years ago. And it went on to sell 43,000 copies. And it launched a 52-part TV show, which was shown around the world on Fuel TV and all these places. And then eventually, it was sort of this time in 1999, just before the book came out, I thought, well, I've just done the book. Why don't I just, you know, do a magazine? So I like longboarding. I'll do a, mo- a longboard magazine. And that's, this, that's how a $5 a month website took over my life for 25 years. That's the short story, at least. Well, ain't it crazy just how, like, I mean, that's just life in general, you know? You're doing something and it's, for lack of a better word, it, you're not into it and it always turns out to be some kind of weird blessing in disguise. Absolutely. That's the most fun thing about skateboarding. That's what skateboarding teaches you um, to really be open and to be um, attuned to your environment in ways that I think a lot of people aren't. And I can go on and on about the philosophy of skateboarding, uh, which I know is something you probably really would enjoy. But ultimately what it boils down to is skaters do stuff. You know, if we see a flipping place to skate, we'll sweep it out. We'll make it our own. We don't sit around. I mean, sure, there are people that sit around and pose. I mean, yeah. whatever. They keep they keep the industry alive. But I don't mess around. When I go to skate park, I skate. People look at me and they're like, oh, my God, what the hell are you doing here? I'm skateboarding. What the hell do you think I'm supposed to be doing? You know, I, I really feel this do-it-yourself attitude is infused in skateboarding. And um, I think it, it's the. I think a lot of skateboarders are great entrepreneurs because they literally, in their DNA, are used to doing stuff. They're not going to sit around waiting for things to happen. That's why they're passionate. And, um, you know, there's a lot of the things, again, that really revolve around thinking for yourself, thinking differently. Um, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but in Ottawa, Ontario, which is about four hours from me, there's been this huge protest, this huge trucker protest, right? Yeah. And, and people are freaking out on the left. People are freaking on the right. Well, the vast majority of skateboarders, and this is how I feel very strongly, is that if you've kept your life in balance, and I've been skateboarding for 45 years, you kind of understand the world of balance. You understand if you go too far to the left on a skateboard, you wind up in a circle. If you go too far to the right, you wind up in a circle. Most skateboarders look at political issues as ones of justice. They, they look at through the, the, the lens of what's right, what's fair. We're a marginalized group. Well, at least we were fairly marginalized. Um, now it's a different story, I think, with the Olympics. And, you know, But we're still harassed. I'm still harassed. People still honk at me. Yeah, it's so, still there. Yeah, it's still there, Gordon. And I think where I'm kind of going with this is that 
Skateboarding by its very nature keeps you in balance, keeps you in flow. And that's, you know, you know how many people spend all kinds of drugs, money on drugs. They spend money on therapy just to attain what skateboarders have. And it's like skateboarding, I think, is the best therapy. Really, it's kept me through all kinds of great stuff, crazy stuff. And yet there it is. It remains the one constant. Did, I mean, does that resonate with you? The, yeah, that's actually, that's a much better articulated way of what I always talk about is it's, it's one of those things like you can just have the worst day ever and you go out and write. And I've written about this a bit in the past and complained about this a lot is just to go out and ride your skateboard and that doesn't mean like the go like hey I'm gonna go here and do this pre planned set of tricks maybe it does for all I know but it's just going out and riding that thing it, there's something you almost become robotic in a sense where it's like okay well this is just what's happening like nothing else I concur completely you know part of the reason why I think international longboarder and concrete wave resonated was the fact that I had this vision of inclusion within skateboarding. You know, back in 1996, if you went into a skate shop and you asked for a longboard, you asked for trucks that turned, or you asked, God forbid, for 70 durometer wheels, the guy behind the register would look at you and, you know, think you're asking for child pornography. It was just an unheard of thing. And I've always made the argument that skateboarding should be like the bike industry. If you look at a bike, you can buy a bike for $75 at Walmart. You literally can get into this thing for 75 bucks, even less if you buy secondhand. But I'm just talking about brand new bikes are less than a hundred bucks. But you can also wind up spending $10,000 on a rim, you know, made in Italy out of carbon fiber. And between those two extremes, you know, a hundred thousand dollar bike or whatever, and a $75 bike, the bike industry doesn't care. They really don't care what you do with it. They just want you to ride safe and they want you to have fun with it. And they're out there promoting their deal. And I always found it really curious that the skate industry had a real problem with women. It had a real problem with older skaters. It had a real issue with freestyle skateboarders, vert skaters. The only thing it concentrated on was street skaters. And it was rails and ledges and rails and ledges. And I and I I have the greatest respect for street skateboarding. My kids street skateboard. I suck at it, but it's awesome. Street skating is amazing. But you know what's even more amazing? Having a huge industry that has all kinds of people skating in it, doing all kinds of things and bringing to it their vibe and their mind. I mean, I can't tell you, Gordon, how many people I met within the world of longboarding who are the coolest, most amazing people, greatest artists who would never have been involved with my life had they not picked up a longboard. I just never would have met them. They weren't street skating. They weren't interested. I had so many people come up to me and say, your magazine, your book inspired me to take up skateboarding again. And my attitude is awesome. And this whole, you know, skate apartheid, this, you know, the trade shows used to be ridiculous. <laughs> it's kind of all dissipated because, you know, Corona does that and yeah. time just wears on. I mean, whatever angle you want to take it, most skate shops begrudgingly or grudgingly or whatever, carry longboards. They carry wheels that are softer. And it's just kind of expected that, yeah, longboards are a part of it. And everyone's kind of cool with it now. But it's like the Gandhi thing, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. And so the skateboarding scene from 1997 versus 2022, and I, I literally can tell you, <laughs> it's night and day. And it's really much more pleasant to see amazing chicks from Korea 
dancing in the streets on their longboards. I mean, it's just, that's insane. And guys, you know, drinking cranberry juice, listening to Fleetwood Mac in their fifties, <laughs> going down the street, that thing went viral, right? It's a stupid video. I mean, what, but, but I mean, it's not stupid. That guy was in a, he, he was, was in flow. flow. Yeah, exactly. And the skateboard industry knew about this. And if any of your listeners want proof of this, go to Dan's world, go to the industry section and go to gentlemen's agreement. And this thing will blow your mind. Because in 1995, the industry met, and actually it was 94, I think. They met, I know it was 95, and, and they, I, but the point is the industry met, all the heavy-duty guys met at the ASR show, Action Sports Show, and they said if we only could have the freestyle scene and the longboard scene and the slalom scene, and we had older women, and we had younger women, we had guys that are older, and they had it all, they had the blueprint in their mind. They all sat around bemoaning, you know, there's too many pros, there's blank decks. They had all these grievances. And then staring them right in the face, okay, is this whole thing where if we just made more variety. Well, I guess I was one of the architects or many architects out there of this change. But I was one of the guys that said, okay, yeah, if the industry agrees that they need to change, but they're not willing to change, then I will do something to uh, affect change. So I just documented that change. And I'm very proud to have done that. I'm not the guy. I'm one of the guys. And if you Google me and you, and you go back to all the issues and there's, you know, you go to issue.com, you'll see in the fine print, I write about how the industry's changing and things are going to be different and wait till women get involved. And, you know, it just, I went on and on and on. I just never stopped that vision in my mind of we need to open skateboarding up and take nothing away from the awesomeness that is street skating. But it, it's it's now moved on to, you know, we're in the Olympics now. So it's really, <laughs> it's yeah, really, it's, totally it's a new point. Now. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's kind of the, the long-winded answer in terms of how do I get into this? Well, I never left it. I just kind of, I just kept going and going, you know, and I, I love it. I really, I love the fact that I can sit down with anybody in the world at any age. As long as they skate, we can connect. And then from there, anything is possible. Yeah. And I have to comment on, I guess, that entire bit right there with just skateboarding being inclusive and everything. And just how I ended up finding Concrete Wave and all that jazz. Because I actually grew up in skateboarding right at that time where it was big pants, little wheels. Like, this is skateboarding, nothing else is. Had I mean, honestly, I had no idea that there was any other kind of skateboarding out there. Like, you saw Tony Hawk on the X Games and all the Vert guys, and that was about as extreme, like, extreme's the wrong word. That's as different as it got, as far as I was aware. So I'd spent all this time watching, like, oh, yes, this is, like, you grind and you jump off of stuff. That's skateboarding. Anything else isn't skateboarding. And then eventually, after all these years go by, it's it gets a little monotonous to me. It's like, man, this can't, like... And of course, I'm not thinking like this deep into it at the time. It's like, man, this can't just be all it is. It's like, I can't be getting bored with skateboarding because I, I'm a skateboarder. That's not something that I'm going to grow out of, but something's happening here. Well, at the time I was hanging out at this bike shop, actually, that sold skateboards because the owner at the time, Jerry, I actually spoke to him on a previous episode. He actually came up skateboarding in the late 70s early 80s so he was bringing he kind of was like my introduction to like well here's all this other stuff like have you seen like public domain and the search for animal chin and like that 
opened my mind a bunch. And then I remember one day from our distributor, our skate distributor, they ended up giving, like we got every here and again, you get little freebies. We got a couple issues of Concrete Wave and I'm looking at this thing and it's, it was so drastically different, even though at the end it was just skateboarding. So I'm looking at these boards and I'm like, man, like that just looks so much fun watching like, what was his name? Adam Colton, I think it was, the guy from Loaded doing all the dancing. Yeah. yeah. And as goofy as that was, and as much as like I got made fun of that from like and I, it's you know, it's fun like jabber among like teenage friends. It's like I got made fun of for like getting into that and doing that. It's like, well no, this is like it's skateboarding, but it's different and it's amazing and it's so cool, even though it's like the nerdiest kind of stuff there is, like even more so than freestyle. <laughs> Yeah, and I know. And I'm an old I'm an old freestyler. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. But freestylers ran the industry. You know, Rodney Mullen, Steve Rocco, World Industries, Pierre Andre, Etnies, Don Brown, Etnies, Soul Technology, uh, the guy over in France, V7. Uh, you know, I could go on and on in terms of Kevin Harris, Canadian distributor for Paul Peralta. At every single juncture, Pear Wellander birdhouse with tony hawk every single point of of contact with the skate industry for at least 15 years the roots of it go back to a freestyler i can guarantee you and the funniest thing is that it's kind of the the old attitude you kind of you become the thing you hate (laughs) they they just hated skate they hated freestyle skateboarding so much that they they pushed you know uh they pushed street skateboarding to the limit. And I, I mean, the funniest thing is these people became friends and, and, uh, you know, I got to know them quite well, see them at the trade shows. And, you know, my whole attitude is sometimes people just need a little nudge, you know, and maybe that nudge for you was seeing concrete wave. You know, there wasn't Instagram, Facebook didn't exist. We put out a video in 2003 or 2004 called evolutions. And this was a two and a half hour DVD. This is before YouTube, right? You couldn't really see stuff. Or if you saw it on YouTube, I think it was like you had two minute clips, right? And we made 10,000 copies of this video. And skate shops were so psyched on this video that they would play it constantly the whole day. And the other thing which is really funny is that this Concrete Wave TV show, it was really a very strange story. I was at an ASR show. And uh, right at the back, there was this group from England and they had this, this like adrenaline TV or something like like a a UK version of that. And I told them about my book and the magazine uh, uh, idea. Like, I I guess, I think at that time I had international long border and they looked at me and they're like, huh. So they made a pilot project. um, And uh, I mean, it it was just actually, sorry. Wrong, 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 wrong. I got to retell the story. I'm confusing it. Gordon, cut that part. Can do. <laughs> no, if, uh, if, what's that? I no, can do that? No, no, can do. Yeah, well, here's, here's the real story because I want to tell the story because I haven't told the story. I had a friend that I went to school with. Uh, her name was Janet Eastwood. And Janet uh, worked in media. She was like some big TV executive. And she had a friend who was involved with television production. And somehow the book had come out. I remember this, this was 1999 in fall. And the producer was interested in buying the rights to concrete wave for a TV show. So my publisher came to see me. I remember this. He's like, here's, here's 50 cents. And I said, what's that? He goes, that's your royalty. Your percentage is 50%. We sold the rights for a dollar. 
And I was cool with this. I was, you know, it's kind of a funny thing when he did that. But what happened in not being greedy and just giving the rights away, uh, this guy, Aiden Cosgrove and his group, JST Productions, as they were called, they made uh, concrete wave television. And then I was at a trade show and I told this guy who's from an English production company or uh, TV show, and they're like, oh, we'll buy more episodes. And then Fuel TV got involved. Now, Fuel TV played concrete wave television 23 times a week. So, you know, the idea that you saw the magazine, there were tens of millions of other people that saw another type of skateboarding just because of concrete wave TV. And what's really funny is the masters have all been destroyed. I don't think you'll ever find it. There's a couple of clips here and there on, on YouTube, but the reality is, is that um, I loved giving the way, I love giving the idea of, of what skateboarding should be about. I love the idea of inclusion. So I didn't care what the medium was. And frankly, you know, at the end of the day, I think I got after 52 episodes, I think I got $5,000. That was the, the comp, the big compensation, but I didn't care. It's like, God, TV, concrete wave. It's like, what else could I, it's like perfect, you know? Yeah. Just Anyways. the idea of it's really cool to me. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. And then, um, I've told the story before, but I'm not I'm sure if you're interested. I can tell you the Lords of Dogtown story. You know, do you ever see that film? So the like production, like the produce, like the fancy Hollywood one, or the actual, or no, Dogtown well, and the Z Boys was this documentary, right? That's right. Well, actually, um, you know that I'm basically responsible for the, the Dogtown Z Boys documentary, which spawned the film. I did not. Would you like to hear that story, Gordon? I'm into that one. Okay. Well, your millions of listeners will be shocked to know. <laughs> That the guy up in Canada dropped a nuclear bomb on this one. I mean, it's a really strange story, but it's true. And I can back it up a thousand percent because even Stacey Peralta confirmed it in Juice Magazine. So I'm not lying, but I would never lie about something like this. Why would I need to? This is the most odd story I've ever really experienced in skateboarding. And I've experienced a lot. But this one, I think because that movie became so instrumental in driving a new concept of skateboarding, Here's what happened. The book was pretty much finished by 1998. And I had been in touch with a guy called Paul Schmidt. Ever heard of him? <laughs> the professor? <laughs> you know, if you don't know Professor Schmidt, something's wrong. There you go. Paul's a sweet, great guy. And we became friendly. And he's like, you know what, Michael? Um, I would love to distribute this book. And at the time, he ran something called Giant Distribution. They had some pretty amazing brands um, like Destructo Trucks and all the, all, the, all the really cool brands that you kind of grew up with, he was a part of. Anyway, um, it got really interesting because Paul was a, he's, a, he's a genius in terms of marketing and understanding how skateboarding works. He's really very, very clever man. And he came up with this really interesting idea, which is, you know what? You and I are going to walk around the ASR show, the Action Sports Retailer Show, and we're going to drop this flyer off and we're going to see what happens. Now, you have to understand, <clears throat> this show was so huge that you couldn't even move. I mean, it was 1998. It was the height of skateboarding madness. I mean, it was just crazy stickers everywhere, girls in bikinis, you know, broing down. Everyone's having a great time. I mean, it was just a cluster, crazy, crazy show. So any piece of paper dropped off at a booth. Frankly, good fucking luck, right? I mean, it was <laughs> ridiculous. I didn't, I mean, I had a great time walking around the show with him talking about the book. And he was amazing. I think he committed to like 3,000 books. And I was really pumped. The book was, was due to come out in a few months, like March 99. And he was ready to hype it up. And, and, you know, God bless him because 
we went to the Spin Magazine booth. And you have to understand, Spin Magazine at the time was a huge deal. And they wanted to be part of skateboarding. They wanted to be cool. So they're at the show. I remember this so clearly. We met a lady there and Paul pulled out the flyer and said, hey, there's this new book. This is the author. It's called The Concrete Wave. Now, you have to understand, we are in Long Beach. Long Beach is in California. New York City is, you know, two and a half, three thousand miles away. There's no way in hell, yeah, that this flyer is going to make it to New York. But it did. And it landed on the desk of a guy called Dave Moody. And Dave Moody contacted my publisher, Nick Pitt, in Toronto and said, there's this book called Concrete Wave. Uh, I understand you're publishing it. We'd like to see a manuscript. So Nick sent out a manuscript to Dave Moody. Now, you have to understand something. I had spent almost a year and a half uh, working on this book, and I was pretty proud of it. But I also recognized that it was just a snapshot. I mean, it was 200 pages, and I had to cram in 40 years worth of, of stories. So it was interesting for Dave Moody to kind of go through the manuscript. And I guess because he's really not a skater, but he's an editor, he zeroed in on the fact that he wanted me to do like an overview. So I remember spending a few hours kind of cutting and pasting, going through the entire book and kind of giving him this overview. And I sent it to him and he said, Michael, this is kind of cool. Um, but, you know, we really like this whole Dogtown story. This is a really cool story. Can you can you do like a you know 5,000 word essay on that? And I said, Dave, I just gave you 5,000 <laughs> words, you know, on my damn book. And, you know, Dogtown's amazing, but it's really, you know, the whole thrust of the book, it's a wave. It kind of has lots of cycles. There's lots of things going on. He said, okay, no problem. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll have our own reporter do it. And I left it at that. I didn't, I didn't really know what else to say. I mean, I, I felt in a sense that I'd done the work. You know, I'd given the 5,000 words in my book was my book and spin the spin. And I didn't know. Yeah, like what else did so, I tell you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I kind of gave it away. I've been giving stuff away and, and that was it. Well, holy shit. This March 1999 spin piece landed. And when it landed, it landed exactly when my book came out. It was March. And what happened was crazy. It was called The Lords of Dogtown. It was written by a guy called Greg Beto. And when this thing hit, all these Hollywood producers started calling up Jeff Ho, Stacey Peralta, and Tony Alva and saying, we want to buy your life rights. I mean, how the hell would I have known that, right? And it just became this feeding frenzy. This story was so hot. And people were so amazed. And you can actually read it. Two thoughts. One is at the end of this piece, Greg was kind enough to write, there hasn't been much written about the world of skateboarding, uh, except for Glenn Friedman's books, Fuck You and Fuck You Too, you know, the Fuck You, Heres, uh, fuck your, uh, fuck you Heroes, which are great books, but really not library material, which is why Glenn is an amazing guy and took some phenomenal photos. But if you call your books Fuck You Heroes, chances are the American Library Association is not going to be down with you. And that's what, that's what happened. Around. Exactly. My book's Concrete Wave. <laughs> Let's go. I actually won an award for it from the American Library Association for reluctant readers, I might add. Anyway, I know I'm winding this story up a little bit, but the reality is it was crazy. And Stacey Peralta was, I think, very disheartened by all this. And he, he felt that he'd lost control of the narrative. And he said, screw it. I'm not going to do my life rights. I'm not going to sell them, rather. And I'm going to make my own damn documentary. And that's when he got in touch with Aggie Orsi, and they got some funding from Vans to the tune of, I think, almost $800,000, most of which was to acquire the music rights. If you want Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin, 
it's very expensive. And he set about making this film. And I remember when he told me about making this film, I remember meeting Aggie and I said to them, if you need any help, like as if they need any help, these guys were the history, you know? And I laughed because this film uh, came out in 2001 and it came out literally two years after the book and the spin article came out. And when it hit Sundance, it won Sundance and the buzz on it was massive. And then of course they kind of kept it under wraps and on September the 8th, 2001, they showed it to the skate industry in San Diego at Action Sports Retailer Show. There was like a private event, two or 300 people showed up. I'm sitting beside, you know, Mickey Vukovic and there's the Thrasher guys and then there's Transworld guys. And it, it was the heaviest, heaviest scene. Alva's there, Peralta's there. And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it because these guys put this thing together and we'd all heard this really amazing story about it. but. But to see it and to see it on that particular moment in time, I remember turning to Stacey Peralta at the end of it and saying, you've captured the soul and essence of skateboarding on film with this. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The film as a documentary spurred Hollywood to move. And they then said, OK, we're going to finance this. We're going to make the Lords of Dogtown and we're going to make this thing happen. And ironically, Greg Beto sold the rights to this film for $20,000. And what's really funny is I read once that Stacey Peralta on the, on the video side of things, like the, the, the actual CD, uh, the video tape and the, and the DVD sold something like 2 million copies. And I think poor Stacey wound up with 35 grand, you know, so Hollywood has a way of really screwing you over yeah. if it wants to. <laughs> um, but I thought you're, I thought you and your listeners might find that a really intriguing story because it's kind of a fun thing and it, it lit the fuse and that film, everybody wanted to ride like the Dogtown guys. Everybody wanted to be cool and vans, you know, I've had, I made a joke once like Steve Van Doren, call me, you know, your stock prices <laughs> through VF Corp have gone through the roof. Vans is now a billion plus dollars a year under the same company that owns, you know, jackets and underwear and God knows what else. But VF Corp, it was a very shrewd move to buy that and that film that eight hundred thousand dollar investment turned into I, I mean it's billions but remember back in 1999 vans was being trounced by soul technology at knees you know dc yeah, like vans wasn't the cool one exactly hey you said it not me <laughs> and now everybody copies them and i'd like to think that that's inspiration for people listening going well you know what the hell can a piece of paper do well a piece of paper in the right hands, traveling at the right velocity, can freaking move the world. Well, it, hearing stories like that and just talking to a lot of people from like the ages of skateboarding before me, it's so cool to think, like you always hear about how the internet and everything's making everything so much smaller. And maybe this is a uniquely skateboarding thing. But I mean, like hearing you talk, it's like, oh, well, you had these connections with like Alva and everybody. It's just something cool about skateboarding. You even touched on this at the very beginning is I can even compare it to with this show. I just being a skateboarder and say, Hey, like you skateboard too. Let's talk. Okay. That's great. There's something cool about it to where regardless of anything else, it's like skateboarders. Again, maybe this is uniquely skateboarding. Maybe it's just a human thing and I'm way overthinking it. Like so collaborative to a point where it's like nothing else matters. It's like, hey, I spent my entire teenage years like struggling to find skateboard friends. Here you are. I don't care where you're at. We're friends now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny. 
what you're talking about, I think, even with the skateboarding fact being in the Olympics and all this other stuff, for the vast majority of people who are young, skateboarding is cool, but it's also a little bit dangerous. You know, I think of basketball, I think of hockey and, you know, golf. We don't really associate danger with them. I mean, they can be unsafe. I mean, people in basketball can break their fingers and people definitely in hockey get hurt. But in order to play hockey, you need an ice rink, you need skates, you need equipment, and you need, frankly, somebody opposing you, right? Um, And if you want to play golf, well, you need a golf course. The accessibility of skateboarding, the fact you actually pick up your skateboard and you go and ride the streets, you ride anywhere, that, that, that right there built into its DNA is a sense of freedom. And I think skateboarders just, just know that. Now, the same is true with a bike. And biking for a lot of people gives a huge sense of freedom. But there's really only so much you can do with a bike. I mean, unless you are into BMX or in a mountain biking, in which case you need to live near a place where, you know, you've got forests and you've got all kinds of, I mean, let's put it this way. Most people live in cities. Most people aren't fortunate to live near, you know, mountains or surf. So my whole experience within the world of snowboarding is if I'm lucky, I get out twice a year and it's very freaking expensive. And, you know, surfing, well, if you don't live on the coast and you're not in warm water, frankly, it's a very disappointing experience because the damn track, you know, the, the, the things moving underneath your feet, it's not easy to surf. It takes a long time to master. And I would say that this freedom, this accessibility, whatever flows from that just adds to the whole joy of, of what it means to ride. And uh, I don't know, I can't think of any other activity, which can be both just soulful ride, you can just do whatever you want, and then hugely technical, you know, it, it, there's really not many other things I can think of that have that extreme. I mean, the other thing is scooters, you know, for a long time, I really railed against scooter kids. And I still kind of can't believe, you know, I always used to say, you know, get a grip, lose the handle. Yeah, it's like the rollerbladers uh, of the early 2000s. Yeah. The funny thing is, though, is that um, the kids the kids are doing crazy shit on scooters right now. And they were doing it for, you know, I'm not saying anything, no, no groundbreaking news here. But I've seen kids at skate parks on scooters doing stuff that I go to them and say, that's insane. These kids are eight or nine years old and they're, you know, they're ripping. But my biggest problem with scooters, and I think you'll agree with me, is that I don't see anybody literally anybody over the age of 25 or 30 riding a scooter unless they are commuting by scooter and they've got the helmet on, you know, those guys, but I don't count those. Those people are, that's a whole other story. That's the powered scooter thing. And that's cool. I'm talking about kids at a skate park. The vast majority are scooter kids. And of those kids, the vast majority are under 14. So my question is, where are the people 15 to, I don't know, 60 well, they're, you know, the vast majority are not on skateboards and some are on scooters every now and then. And that's the thing with skateboarding because it's so cool. And because you can do so many different things with it, you can, you can literally skate for life. I've never seen anybody wearing a, you know, scooter or die t-shirt. It's just <laughs> not in, it's just not that's there, you know, right there. Yeah. That's a t-shirt, but you know, they wear thrasher shirts. They wear, they wear, I mean, thrasher stickers on scooters is just a thing, right? Because the kids feel like it's gnarly. And I was at a trade show in Germany, really fun trade show called the uh, ISPO show. And actually drinking a mug from ISPO 2013. And this show is the equivalent of 14 convention centers. It was built in a former airline factory or airplane factory or something. I mean, it's just massive. 
And within the section one year, they had like a whole scooter section. And there are these kids from, I guess they're from Germany or Netherlands, or whatever. They, everybody kind of congregates. If you're in Europe, 200 kilometers, it's a big drive. They all drive in or take the train in. And they're all sitting there with these girls. And they're probably 17 to 20 years old. And they all have long hair. They're drinking, they're smoking, which is prohibited. You know, I mean, drinking is one thing. Smoking, they don't like in Germany. And they're just wasted scooter kids, you know, with their posse of chicks. And they're all like heavy metal dudes. <laughs> and I thought, you know, they've basically co-opted the whole skater kind of experience. They're just having fun, wasted at a trade show, but they're riding scooters. And it's hardcore for them. And I, I mean, I can't I can't let the sale, sale uh, the wind out of their sails. I mean, it's, it's their deal. But it was just... I'd never seen or experienced that before because most kids on scooters where I live, it's like suburbia and yeah, it's the moms drop off little Sparky or Johnny or whatever. And they they got clean, you know, they get real upset and offended by skateboarders. You know, we're, we're the nasty old school guys or we're the, you know, the really treacherous street skaters. And it's just this real misunderstanding, but (laughs) over in Germany, they didn't fully on embraced it. And I thought that's kind of cool. I mean, I have something else I really want to tell you. You know how we have the Olympics going on in China right now. Yep. And I have a I have to tell you, China's a really funny thing because of course everyone's like, you know, the Uyghurs, it's a repressive authoritarian regime, but oh, I really need cheap product. And I'm one of those guys, you know, I most of my shit that I buy, I think is made in China. So, we have to be very careful biting the hand that feeds us. But I'd like to look at it a different approach, which is, huh, so the skateboarding has come to, you know, the Olympics and the Chinese want to win at the Olympics. So the Chinese are going to cultivate a whole bunch of skaters. So they're going to build skate parks, which they are. My friend Jonah is building them. And uh, reality is, is, hey, wait a second. You're letting skateboarding into your country? Well, you build a lot of the skateboards. So now you're letting your actual population ride? Huh. I wonder what that's going to do over the next 20 years. So it's kind of like, you know, the Beatles and communism, right? The Beatles basically overthrew communism. Everyone likes to think it's the politicians. No. the population were so enamored and so loved what the Beatles said and so loved the music that they would make acetates from x-rays. You can look it up. They would burn freaking songs onto x-rays so they could play on their record players because <laughs> you couldn't get the freaking records. And there was bootlegs. And why I'm telling you this is be careful what you unleash in a country when it comes to skateboarding. Because in 20 years from now, Beijing will be overrun <laughs> with skateboarders. And you know what? That might actually undo things. In fact, if I was running the world, I would probably send, I don't know, along with food, a whole bunch of skateboards to North Korea and see what happens next, you know. But that's a whole other story. It's just skateboarding sets you free. And everybody that knows this in their heart who's a skater loves to pass it on to other people. That's why the conversations and the connections start. You know, back in the day, if you wore a Vans t-shirt or you had Vans shoes or you you had a any kind of little motif that screamed that you were a skater you were immediately a buddy and the same thing happened in snowboarding i used to snowboard in 88 you know hey you got a snowboard i got a snowboard we're at the same hill boom and, and all of a sudden you know you're riding the whole day and the stories and the friendships form and i don't know i mean i love having these conversa- conversations because the fact is is that for so long skateboarding has ignored the side of it we've all always been driven by the new and the latest you know the guy doing the 40 stare, all these, and it's so impactful, so immediate. And now we are literally, well, 60 plus years deep 
we've got enough history that we can now start to really ruminate on what it means to be a skateboarder. And there's a guy called Paul O'Connor um, that has written extensively about how skateboarding cures depression, you know, in older people. And this guy is a sociologist and it's at a PhD level. And he, he's done a book called Skateboarding and Religion. And this book is absolutely mind-blowing. It puts my book to shame. My book is just kind of what it's like to be a skater at a funeral home. And some of the crazy stories I had in skateboarding that relate to death. And, and that's the endless wave. But his book, Skateboarding and Religion, is just, it's unbelievable how heavy it is. And all I would say is, this is long overdue. As much as anthropologists study, you know, the Mayan civilizations, we need anthropologists, you know, to study skateboarding civilizations. I mean, it, it's that deep. Well, it really is such a, it's more than a cultural phenomenon. Because, I mean, yeah, at any point, maybe like 2001 or 1990 or like early 80s, you could have said like, yeah, this is this is just a little fad. This is what the kids are into. It's going to be over. And then turns out like, hey, this is still keep going. And I mean, even just looking at me and kind of comparing your argument for like, hey, you just you put skateboards in an area where there weren't skateboards before. Now there's it's going to change the way these people think. And honestly, like, I think that's true because for me, when I started to skateboard, that completely changed what at the time was just this ghost town to kind of bring it to your specials bit. That changed that from like, okay, well, wait, this isn't just like a bunch of empty buildings anymore. This is all of this. Like, this is basically a giant playground now. And that's a little yes. way to put it, but it's those small changes that kind of snowball over time. Exactly. And it's a cumulative effect. I mean, I'm 47 years riding. Can you imagine how freaking crazy my brain is when it comes to flow? Well, how my, you know, more than three quarters of my life has been spent on a board with wheels going back and forth, just carving and just enjoying the ride. It's, it's goes right back to what we talked about in terms of just how fun it is and how accessible it is. And I've got a guy down in Florida called Isaac Farron. And if you Google his name, Isaac Farron Longboard Therapy, this guy actually uses longboards in his therapy practice. I mean, think about that for a minute. People are paying, I don't know, 200 bucks an hour on only charges to ride with him and to explore their own mental well-being via a skateboard. There you go. Yeah, and it's, that's one of those things. And that's where it's cool to hear, like, yeah, like actual, like, some of the older skateboarders now are now, you know, they're doctors and whatnot. And they're actually like looking at this from a scientific standpoint. But me hearing that, it's like, yeah, of course, that's going to like, of course, riding a skateboard is going to help you. <laughs> of course. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's so logical, but I think what's nice about what's really, really nice about what happened during the pandemic. If there's any sort of silver lining is that more and more people got into skateboarding. And, you know, it's funny because we have this boom bust cycle and, or I like to think of it as waves, waves of consciousness. People realize, Oh yeah, skateboard is kind of cool. I'm going to get a skateboard. You know, back to the future was a big catalyst. Um, actually, would you like to hear something funny? I don't know for time. Uh, you know, no, you're good. I'm not sure if you, I'm good. So I have a, I have a, a really interesting theory uh, on the way things kind of change within skateboarding. And you know what? It's a podcast. I might as well just kind of give you, 
my my insights into it. It basically is the seven year history of cycles. And if you go back to 1974, that's when urethane wheels really started to connect. It had come out earlier, but 74 was a, a huge deal. And, um, you know, by 76, 77, things were just massive, right? But if you take 74 and you add seven, you get to Thrasher magazine coming out, which is 1981. And again, Three or four years later, by 85, 86, you have a huge resurgence again. However, you take 81 and you bring it to 88, and all of a sudden, things are starting to change. That's when world industry comes out. And I met Steve Rocco and Mike Vallely in Toronto in 87, and they were just kind of percolating with it. Um, That was a really bizarre experience, but um, I'll save that for another podcast. (laughs) Anyhow. 88, Rocco comes out with World Industries, and by 95, the industry is upside down, completely crazy, street skating, all the old companies are done, pretty much. I mean, they're not really done, but, you know, all these new companies have have burgeoned. But if you think about it, 91, 92, small wheels, you know, things had really kind of gone in a whole different direction. So basically, these catalysts, and Rocco was a catalyst in the same way Thrasher Magazine was a catalyst, in the same way... um, the urethane wheel was a catalyst, but I can go further with you. So if you look at 88 and uh, you go a few years, uh, you get into some really extraordinary things happening. 1995, uh, Sector 9 was two years old. Uh, Gravity was one year old. These are longboard companies. Now, there had been companies making longboards here and there, but again, with the seven-year cycle, uh, you had a situation in which you know, a lot of cool things are happening. So that's one idea of looking at it. But this is really interesting. 1988 plus seven years gets you to 1995. 1995, you have the X Games or the Extreme Games, another catalyst. And seven years later, from 1995 to 2002, Billabong by Sector 9, which was a huge thing. And that's when longboarding really started to kind of grow. And I could go further, you know, 2009, something happened. I can't remember, but I'm sure something major catalyst hit. And I'm sure something happened in 2016, but I've kind of, you know, I lost the plot a while on it. The math (laughs) is really funny, but I just, I mean, it's just funny. Little catalysts come up and then it takes a few years for them to percolate in the case of the urethane wheel or Steve Rocco and world industries. But by the time they've hit their mark, the industry's changed and everything is in full swing again. And I guess you could make the argument that in 20, in 2019, uh, well, what was it? 2019, uh, no one anticipated the, uh, the Corona, right? Everyone was like kind of disheartened. The industry was sucking, uh, at least the longboard side of things. I, I think the shortboard was also in a bit of a crisis. Um, things had sort of gone south in around 2017, 2018, but by 2020, everyone discovered, oh yeah. If you want to get outside real fast, real cheap, jump on a skateboard. And the industry went from, I think, three or four million riders to nine million riders. You know, they were they were caught short. So 2021 was a great year, no doubt. I think the, you know, the overall problem with the skate industry is they kind of go, oh, everyone loves us now. Oh, great. We'll just make more. And they, they made too much product. And now I think they're faced with surplus. So it's a boom bust thing again. And then something else will come around. Um, but I thought you'd like to see that insight. Do, do you agree with it? Does it make any sense? No, that actually, 
I mean, kind of pointing like you going through the dates. It's like, yeah, no, that's that's about right. <laughs> yeah, no, I I, I I I think about skateboarding in many different perspectives, and I enjoy kind of ruminating on you know if, what would have happened if this had changed. I mean, I think the funniest thing is is this idea of a butterfly effect. You know, one little flyer placed at a spin magazine booth changed the course of so many different people's history and companies' history that it's it's crazy. I, I used to love getting people together. You know, these little trade shows. There was a trade show uh, called Agenda, which was part of Action Sports Retailer in terms of it competed at the same time. And they wanted to, you know, do a curated show and all this kind of stuff. And they would take limousines. They would rent limousines in San Diego and Long Beach. And they would limo people back and forth to their little, out, you know, outpost and this this show was basically i remember going there once it's just tables with people sitting their stuff on tables like it was just okay we've come from this you know people spending a million dollars on a booth to hey it's like you know 500 bucks for a table and everyone kind of just thought it was a quirky little show well a few years later of course it had taken over and asr imploded and I guess the only reason why I'm, I'm talking about this is that I wound up doing a trade show during Agenda. I tried to do to Agenda what Agenda had done to ASR. <laughs> and uh, that's a whole other story. But we did it at this place called Famous Dave's, which was um, a little restaurant across the street. And, you know, I remember doing this trade show and it was probably a few hundred people would show up. But people would get together. They'd share stories. They'd really enjoy each other's company. And business deals went down and things happened. And I can't help but think that had we not had this opportunity, you know, what things would have not happened. I mean, it's just, you, you can really get really deep. Maybe someone's going to listen to this podcast and go, holy crap, I'm going to do this, or I'm inspired to do that. And um, that's, that's a really cool thing to be a part of. Creating is, is in the DNA of skateboarding. Like I said in the beginning, skateboarders do things. Um, and that can lead to some wonderful things being created. Yeah, that's actually, that's my hidden agenda behind wooden your ear and everything like yes it's a funny haha show and we talk about skateboarding and whatnot but in the end and this again this is just skateboarding in general like that's my goal is to secretly plant the idea into everyone's head like hey you know just just fucking do it <laughs> uh, yeah yeah like to steal from nike just do it yeah it yeah might, and i think yeah work. who knows It'll work. It'll work because you're going to, you're, you're actually making it work. You're actually doing the work. I mean, again, what happens with most people is they try it and they're like, well, it didn't really work. But skaters, because they get kicked out of skate spots and because people frown on the fact that they're doing it. I can't tell you how many people tell me, Oh, aren't you old for that thing? Like people, I live in a condo full of a lot of old people. And I always like to tell people I'm the oldest, youngest person here, but it's just, you know, aren't you old for that? It's like, go fuck yourself, lady. You know, you old little windbag. What the fuck do you care about what I'm doing? And, you know, I'm 57 years old. I'm not telling them that. But in my mind, I'm thinking, hey, you'd really enjoy this. In fact, if you'd been riding this thing in your, in your you know, preteen years, you wouldn't be the cranky old person you are now. But again, it's lost, right? If you have to ask someone in their 50s with gray hair or tell them, aren't you too old for that thing? My attitude is, you lost the plot a long time ago. I, I meet people. Um, I'll be honest with you, Gordon. I meet people who are fascinating. You know why? Because I'm drawn to the fact that they're obsessed with, you know, boxes made out of cardboard that turn into chickens or 
they they do stamp collecting or yeah. they've got you know ten thousand records in their library whatever their quirky thing is it's like i i'm just drawn to it i'm drawn to people who create unique things who have a passion for life because i very much feel that that's pretty much what gives people joy you know and and if you take someone's joy and you trash it and that's why i, I can't really bag on the scooter kids you know aren't you you know, shouldn't you be on a skateboard? You know, I mean, that's not like going to get you. That's not going to get you any honey. That's just going to get you scooter kids saying Dick is a skateboarder and Bleh, I hate those guys. If you say, man, that's a rad fucking thing you did. That is awesome. That kid is going to be beaming for the rest of his days because some old skateboard dude or some other skateboard dude said to him, man, I dig what you're doing. Now, again, it's really easy for me to sit here and pontificate all day long and saying, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful? Everyone, you know, did this, but Again, it goes back to the concept of skaters love what they do. They're proud of what they do. They get hurt doing what they do, but they're cool with it. And some don't get hurt. And the vast majority of people need to understand that we're not freaking going up, you know, 2,000 foot vertical shears. I mean, I look at mountain climbers. I've seen these mountain climb videos. You know, these guys that are going up with no gear to just, you know, climbing up. Those guys are fucking mental. Yeah, the guys are that ride for ones. Yeah, those is like... Aren't you too old? Like, I would look at that. I have nothing but extreme admiration for people who do that kind of thing. I, I feel they are bonded deeper than any other types of people in the world. I can't imagine what it must feel like to climb up a mountain. I mean, I, I was at Yosemite, and I was watching these people, and I was, I was just stunned. And this guy's climbing. I don't see the guy climbs up with his bare hands up Yosemite. I mean, what can you say to someone like that? You know, people talk about Rodney Mullen, how insane a skater he is. And he's amazing. He's the guy that he's the blueprint of street skating is all they do to whatever. He's amazing. But in terms of uh, commitment, uh, these guys, I mean, you will die. You won't die doing it on, on all the impossible. It might frustrate the hell out of you. And I used to be able to do them. And it frustrates me that I can't do them anymore. But but in all the impossible, you might get that. There's no way in hell I'm climbing up this stuff without you know ropes and a train guide and i mean i think i made my point it, yeah. it's like the vast majority of people live their lives doing their thing and older people and people who have i don't know a propensity just to be jerks somehow want to take the stoke out of people's lives and um i'll, I'll be skating down the street and people will be honking at me it's like really I'm just enjoying myself. You know, it's not all about cars. You're 99.999% you know, involved in the road. I just want that 0.001% of the road, you know, and uh, at, at this one particular time. Um, and, and it's just, you know, get, people get so upset, but that's all good. Yeah. And I guess my little last thing, cause we're running out of time, but I mean, it's been a while since I've bought like a, skateboard at a skate shop what with everything going on and i just don't go through them as much anymore but i don't ever remember seeing like an ages 7 to 14 tag on the board (laughs) yeah yeah it's funny to think that i don't know man i think there's a lot of people looking for the fountain of youth these these baby boomers and i'm at the tail end of the baby boom i was born in 64 the oldest baby boomer is 76 the youngest one is 58 so I'm right at the end. I'm right there in 1964. And I've, I've ridden on the coattails of these guys, and they are now taking on, you know, older age. The vast majority of them are in their 60s. And um, the funny thing is, is that I never stopped skating. So my whole attitude is, if you've never stopped skating, 
or you've picked it up and it's been a while, you've now tapped into the fountain of youth. And it, and if you treat it right, you don't, you know, you don't try and do 40 sterolies, right? You know, from the beginning, you kind of ease yourself into, into it. You'll be fine. And you'll, you'll enjoy this. As I tell people, they're going to pry the skateboard from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> I will ride. I, I actually have my thing and I work at a funeral home. So I see a lot of cemeteries, see a lot of gray stones. And I think, I think my epitaph will be, you know, skated and died. <laughs> I think that's pretty much the best appropriate way of ending. <laughs> well, I mean, those are your two options, right? Yeah. Skate and die. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, uh, it's all good, man. It's been real a pleasure talking to you. I think, I think, um, I think the technical gods are saying this is probably an hour uh, and it'll have to be <laughs> severely edited, but hopefully your audience will find this uh, amusing. If people are interested, uh, I know I want to get this pitch in. If people are interested in reading my book, The Endless Wave, um, Skateboarding, Death and Spirituality, the best way to get it is to just download it. It's free. Um, and I'll, I'll send you a link if you want and people yeah, can Google it. I'll put yeah. that in the show notes for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. Um, I don't know how to say this, but I gave this book away because I felt skateboarders could handle it. You know, I think skateboarders uh, are intimately familiar with, with early death. We have a lot of our heroes who've died young, Jay Adams. I mean, I can go on and on, but it's, uh, it's very much a part of people's lives. And um, I've written this just to kind of give a perspective. And uh, yeah, what can I say, Gordon? Thank you very much for even taking the time to listen to me. No, thank you for putting up with me not responding forever and sitting down with me. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm happy to uh, happy to oblige. <laughs>